I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occurred just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Andrew Falkowski, and I'm an undergraduate student studying material science here at the University of Utah. And in the second chair, I'm joined by my co-host, Taylor Sparks. And in the third chair, we're joined by Jared Duffy, our audio engineer. He's going to make sure that our audio comes across crisp and clean for you. Yeah, we were just talking about I made a big deal. I said, don't come after me on the first episode. And the first thing we do is get a review saying, fix the audio. I can't yeah, he's get calling every... you out, Jared. I know. It's off on the you. bat. Rest white, assured. White blazer. I will fix the audio. Don't <laughs> we you are, worry. We've got our best minds on this. Top men. But, but thanks for joining us this month. You know, I'm going to set this discussion off with this question. Let's imagine you work for an airline company. You've built an airplane. These are incredibly expensive. Um, as you're using it, you know that it's undergoing lots of cyclic stresses, that it's possible that cracks are growing inside the fuselage, right, the, the skin of the aircraft itself, how do we know if there's going to be a catastrophic failure? Do you just retire the airplane after 5, 10 years, you know, some safety margin? Do you only let it go on X number of flights? What would you guys do? Well, statistically, we know that there's going to be cracks that are going to form within our material. Even when we process it initially and make it, right, there's possibility for flaws. But the real big question is, where are our critical flaws? Because that really determines the strength yeah, of our where material. Are they? How big are they? And unless you're Superman and you can turn on your X-ray vision, it's hard to see these things. So surprisingly enough, they actually do do X-ray tomography, right? Radiography, they'll actually use X-rays you know, to look through a material and they can see where cracks are based off of how much X-rays go right through your material. That's a powerful technique. Um, and there's another technique known as ultrasound, which can help us identify these. So why do we need to find these? This goes, I'm going to introduce the core MSC concept here. It has to do with something called Griffith fracture theory. In Griffith fracture theory, as Andrew said, you always have some statistical probability of having flaws in your material. And the odds of you having one that is very large depends on how big your sample is, as well as processing conditions. And we know that even if 99% of your material is flaw-free, all it takes is one large flaw and you can have brittle, catastrophic failure. So why do things fail brittly versus ductily? It has to do with, and this is pretty remarkable, it, has, it goes into how they derive this formula. It has to do with the energy which goes into creating new surfaces. We know that all surfaces have surface energy, so that's a penalty that we have to pay if you split a material in half. But at the same time, if you're pulling on a material and you're, or squeezing on it and you're deforming it, you also have lattice energy with all these atoms being displaced in a place where they don't want to be, and that's costing you energy too. So there's this trade-off. On one hand, if the crack fractures all the way through the material, it's going to cost you energy, but you relieve the internal lattice energy, then the trade-off happens. And if you get a big benefit by relieving internal stress, then you get brittle fracture and it's going to continue all the way through your material. So there's something called fracture toughness in material science, and fracture toughness is equal to an equation, you know, y sigma square root pi ac. People have probably seen this if they study material science, and the details don't matter, but what's important here is that based off of your test conditions and the stress, there exists a critical flaw size. That critical flaw size, if we exceed it, then brittle fracture occurs. It will fracture spontaneously. So 
Andrew, what are we going to do? We know that this brittle flaw size, you know, exists if you know the fracture toughness of your material. How are we going to figure out whether the material of interest has that flaw size? Right. So we need some sort of way of measuring um, where those exactly are and how big they are. And so, you know, you want to do this ideally in a non-destructive way, right? You don't want to be sawing your airplane in half and doing bend tests on it to determine if it can still fly. So it turns out that sound waves are actually a really good way to look inside of a material and measure these different things. And so then the next question is, okay, well, how do we detect sound waves and how do we quantify those, right? And that's where a really cool class of materials called piezoelectrics come in. Now, just thinking about the name, piezo comes from the word pressure. So applying some sort of pressure, an electric, we are all kind of familiar, associated with some sort of charge or electricity. So the underlying principle of these materials is that if you apply an electric field to them, you're going to see some sort of deformation. You're going to see some sort of pressure. You're going to see a shift in the crystal structure. Very slight, but you'll see it. The opposite is also true, where if you apply some pressure to these materials, you'll see an electric field appear on either side. Piezoelectrics, I think, are one of the most misunderstood things, but like popular science has this fascination with them. There's this movie that I remember watching ages ago called, I think it was Santa with Muscles or something. Anyways, it had Hulk Hogan as Santa. And the end of the movie, the climax, they're in a cave with what they kept on pronouncing piezoelectrics. And it was these, you know, big, ridiculous looking crystals. And at one point, I think if you dropped one, they exploded. And this is definitely not the case. These things do not explode. That is not what's happening here. But they do exhibit the phenomenon that Andrew described. You apply an electric field and it will strain. The, lat the crystal will actually you know, change its dimension slightly. Or if you squeeze that crystal, it will produce an electric field on the opposite sides of the crystal, which is pretty amazing. So this was discovered in 1880 by the brothers Pierre Curie and Jacques Curie. And Pierre, by the way, was the husband of the famous Marie Sklodowska Curie. Um, they tested on a bunch of natural minerals, tourmaline, quartz, topaz, cane sugar even, Rochelle salt. Uh, they basically found that lots of these things exist. Nowadays, we rely on different materials. Um, the, the degree to which you can get this coupling between electric field and strain, it was a long time before we figured out a way to make it be very, very strong. Um, for example, the dielectric constant of polymers was like 4 for ceramics, it was typically like 3 to 10. And all of a sudden, when we discovered these titanates, it's 15 to 10,000, right? It's orders of magnitude better. So why? Why are these so much better for these types of applications? It has to do with the crystal structure. In material science, we have the perovskite crystal structure. Andrew, do you want to explain it to us? What is the perovskite crystal structure? Yeah, so if you imagine a, a cubic lattice, okay? And then within it, you have an atom in the very center of that. And then branching off and six directions, um, you then have other atoms extending. So these are labeled A, B, and O, where the A atoms are going to be on the corner of that cubic lattice, the B atoms going to be in the very center, and the O, oxygen, are going to be those branching atoms. We'll put a picture on our Instagram so you can see it as well. So one last thing to note about piezoelectrics, and this actually goes beyond piezoelectrics, this has to do with all uh, ferroelectric phenomena. What happens is that there exists a Curie temperature, or sometimes called a Curie point, above which you lose these permanent properties. And this exists with magnetism, exists with ferroelectrics, like what we're talking about, and other phenomena. Above that temperature, what happens is the crystal becomes perfectly cubic. So on average, if these poles exist, they exist in all directions and they cancel one another out. But if you cool it below the Curie point or the Curie temperature, then the crystal actually switches. It goes from cubic to tetragonal, and you now have a permanent dipole. And that could be a permanent magnetic dipole or a permanent ferroelectric dipole. Um, but that's the Curie temperature at which this happens. So if you're going to make devices out of these, let's say you want to make 
a piezoelectric for measuring, you know, these things that we're interested in, it has to be operating below its Curie temperature. Mm -hmm. And that's going to come in more important when we look at recent advances in, you know, non-destructive measuring techniques. One thing I do want to note is that although it's called ferroelectricity, kind of an unfortunate name, it has really nothing to do with iron. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. The, the origin of that has to do with, um, you know, the, the, the mineral that is naturally magnetic, lodestone like magnetite is mm -hmm. mostly iron. And so I think that there was this, this thought that maybe there's something special about iron, but we've since learned that many other materials can exhibit the same behavior. Okay, so looking at the phenomenon of piezoelectrics, you see that if you apply some pressure, you can generate an electric field. And what that means is that this material can essentially function as a transducer and allow you to take a pressure and quantify it in terms of an electric field that's generated. Okay, so the next question is, how can we use this to measure sound waves? So it turns out that if you make these thin enough, uh, they can become very sensitive to ultrasound vibrations. And so then you can quantify the wavelength and the strength of those ultrasound vibrations, turn it into an electric field, and thus quantify those. Yeah, the classic example is think of sonar. Uh, sonar would not be possible if not for piezoelectrics. You take a little tiny crystal, you, with an electric field, cause it to vibrate, and that produces pressure waves, which go into the water, you know, and then these waves go down, 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 and they're going to hit the ocean floor, and then they're going to reflect and bounce back, and as they come back, that pressure wave hits the crystal, you turn it back into an electric signal, and you've measured the depth of the ocean floor. If, you know, you hit a submarine, then that wave's going to hit it, and then it's going to bounce back sooner than otherwise. And so you'll see, hey, there must be something there. So fish finders, you know, ocean floor mapping, lots and lots of cool things uh, work by the same principle. Actually, and you know, my wife's about two weeks out from having our fourth baby. And so sonar, you know, we're using something like we're using ultrasound measurements all the time to measure things about the baby. They can measure the size of the heart, the size of the limbs. Nowadays, they have 3D sonar and you can see like their little tiny goblin faces because they look weird <laughs> inside yeah. the womb when you look at them through sonar. It's pretty wild. Okay. So now we see that we can actually measure sound that's you know, we can measure sound and try to figure out distances with it. So let's go back to that plane analogy. We are suspecting that there might be a flaw, or at least we're worried that there might be a flaw in the plane. So how can we use this then? Well, by sending sound waves through our materials and getting signal back, we can determine the locations of flaws. We can measure the thickness of different materials and the distance of where those flaws are. We can also measure elastic and visuelastic properties. And additionally, we can measure the speed of sound and other, you know, important related things through materials. So through the help of piezoelectric materials, we've actually discovered a new way of characterizing materials in a non-destructive way. We don't have to break them or do any other destructive testing. And we just used it this week in my lab. My graduate student, Jake, we had a piston and we needed to load it up to what we weren't sure if it was going to be too high of a load. We didn't want it to deform, but we didn't know how thick the piston wall was. And we're sitting there scratching our heads, trying to find drawings, trying to figure out how thick this was. And then he reminded me, he's like, dude, we have the ultrasound measurement system. Let's just measure how thick it is. Duh. Like it turned out to be a great tool. And we knew right away that it was, you know, quarter or an eighth inch or whatever it was. Pretty slick tool though. So as I've been going with my, with my wife to the doctor and they take, you know, these ultrasound measurements of the baby, the first thing they do is they squirt this gel on your belly. And I remember like the first time that we had a baby, it was like this cold gel and Jody was not having it. But nowadays, it's nice and warm. They smear it on there. They take out the little, you know, TV remote looking wand and they raster it over my wife's belly. And if that gel's not there, then you don't see the picture of the baby. So the reason that the gel has to be there is it's a coupling agent, right? So the ultrasonic vibrations that the piezoelectric is producing, they don't transmit well through the air. 
right? And so instead, you have to have some sort of medium to transmit those waves. And as I was doing research for this uh, podcast, I learned a lot about the fact that you actually can do ultrasound where you don't have a coupling agent, where you do it through air. Now, there's a lot of challenges with air. It's a really bad coupling agent because it's compressible, whereas materials like water or the, you know, the liquids that they use usually are incompressible. So the waves transmit through them really well. So if you're going to do it with air, you've got some serious challenges to overcome. First off, the speed of the sound in air, the speed of these waves is 342 meters per second, which sounds fast until you compare it to other materials. Water is 1,500, so five times faster. Plexiglass is 2,600 meters per second, and aluminum is 6,300. So because it is so much slower than those materials, what happens is that as the wave, which is moving slow in air, hits the material where it's going to move faster, that changes the wavelength. If your basic physics class, you remember this, it's called refraction. So the index of refraction, for example, this changes what the allowable incident angles are. Essentially, if you're going to use air as your coupling medium, you can only do it if your angle of incidence is very, very low, less than 15 to 20 degrees in most materials. Another big problem has to do with the acoustic impedance. The, the acoustic impedance, that's what's known as the resistance to acoustic flow resulting from acoustic pressure in a system. So that's sort of a weird thing. Think of it like resistance, like electrical resistance, but now it's for impinging you know, atoms using waves. Um, the acoustic impedance of something like quartz is maybe 15 M rail, mega rails. I had to look up what on earth this unit was, right? Um, while the impedance of air is only 425. So it's 35,000 times smaller. The problem is if you ever have two materials with very big difference in acoustic impedance, it's not going to work well for piezoelectric ultrasound. So for a typical piezoelectric crystal in air with its impedance, the solid that you would need would have to be more compliant and or much less dense than water. So think of yourself, what solids do you know of that are both less dense than water and more compliant? Not many are coming to mind. Now, there have been some attempts to engineer some specific materials to make this work. One thing you could do is add porosity, right? As you add porosity, it's going to reduce your density and make it more compliant. Um, the problem is you can't have your pores be too big because if they're roughly the size of the sound wave, then you get diffraction, as we learned about a few months ago on our podcast on diffraction. So they have to be very small. Um, and so some materials technically should work, things like silica aerogels. And people have tried these, but they are very delicate. And so it's not an ideal solution. So in the absence of a good coupling agent, people have realized that there's other ways to go about this. There's something called a capacitive film transducer. These are pretty interesting. You basically take your back plate and you design it so that it has air gaps, right? So make like a V, a bunch of V grooves. And then sitting on top of those V grooves where there's air gaps in the bottom in those V areas, you put a plastic membrane with a little metal layer on it. So it's a capacitor. And as this thing vibrates, the small amounts of air that are trapped in the V grooves is able to vibrate the plastic membrane significantly and you can get a big measurable change in the, in the capacitance of this film. And that's how they're able to measure these things in air. So I think one of the big questions is why you'd want to use air as a coupling agent in the first place, right? And so really that stems from, okay, say you can't actually put uh, this gel, this uh, coupling gel on the material, or say you can't submerge it in water, right? So uh, I'm going to go through a couple articles here that actually kind of talk about that. We'll put these on the show notes. The first is talking about 
using air-coupled ultrasound in the measurement in food industries. So that's something where you don't want to actually be putting this piezoelectric sensor on food, right? And so what they've been using it for is essentially to evaluate agglomeration in milk-based products, so make sure there aren't any sort of issues or nasty things going on in there. They'll also use it in to detect issues in packaging. So microwavable foods, um, you know, you want to make sure that your packaging is going to be intact so no foreign bodies get get into that. But you also want to make sure that the stuff that's in there is mixed up properly, right? If you just have like an agglomeration of starch or some other powder that wasn't mixed properly, right? No one's going to want to eat that. And so by using um, ultrasound, they're able to detect these and assess the quality of the food they're putting out. That's so cool. I've never th- even thought about that. Okay. But as Taylor got into it, measuring ultrasound in air and not having actual contact with the material is a challenge. So we'd like to have a better way of measuring this or a way of avoiding some of the problems with air as a coupling agent. And so one of the developments that has come around rather recently is laser ultrasound. So piezoelectrics have a limited temperature range, right? They have to be below their Curie temperature. So this means that, you know, if you're trying to test something that is at an elevated temperature above its you know, Curie temperature. Yeah, think about that. Piezoelectrics aren't going to work. You're not going to be able to use those in order to make accurate measurements, right? There are also couplant liquids that can't be used above 500 degrees Celsius. So, That's right. All right, you can't submerge it. So in some cases, air is the only option. So you're just out of luck or what? Well, as it turns out that when a high-powered laser is directed at the surface of a metal, right, it's going to absorb some of that electromagnetic energy. And at that local spot, the temperature is going to rise tens or hundreds of degrees, right? And it's going to create some very localized strain. Oh, interesting. So that, the thermal expansion is the origin mm-hmm. of the pressure wave that they and use it's, for ultrasound. Yeah, it's so small. But as that strain then relaxes, right, it releases ultrasound waves across the material. So this must be pulsed then. Like yeah. the, way, the laser energy is constantly pulsing. It's pulsed in like pico or femtoseconds. Dude, that's cool. And so that produces the wave. How do they measure it? It's, is it still contact-free? They don't have a, um, a transducer connected to the backside or anything? Right. So the measurement mechanism is a little bit tricky, and it'll depend on what sort of system or setup you have. But the one that I was reading about essentially is that when they fire the laser down at the material, they will split it and have part of the beam is going horizontal, right? And so as these uh, ultrasound waves move across the material, they are slightly deforming the material just a little bit, but it's enough to change the reflective nature of the material such that when the laser comes back up, it's going to reflect the the change in strain, right? It's going to have some inconsistencies in it. Yeah, and so when those two lasers meet back together, you'll be able to – they'll interfere with one another, and you'll be able to measure the interference and thus be able to pick up signals from the material. That is so cool. So you get genuinely contact-free ultrasound that can deliver the same information as if it had been coupled – that is super cool. Right. And where this really becomes beneficial is that uh, the transducer for you know, a piezoelectric has to be you know, a certain size, or at least it has a size dimension to it. With a laser, the you, can size get, can be tiny. you can get really tiny. So you can see localized. really small areas. You can really like map the flaws in your material pretty accurately using mm-hmm. this laser interferometry. Or if there's then. a part that's internal or somewhere you know that flaws are you know, especially critical that can't be reached with a piezoelectric, this can be really useful for that. On top of that, you typically will get higher spatial resolution just because of the resolution of light as opposed to sound waves and the ability to focus it on a, uh, on a specific spot. Additionally, cool. because light can move much faster and you can pulse a laser so fast, you can kind of raster over your image and detect differences across a material much quicker. So I imagine that there's probably still some limitations, right? Anytime that you're blasting this thing with so much energy, maybe you're going to volatilize your sample or locally melt it, or maybe you have issues to think about with reflection versus absorption. Um, But that's a pretty cool technique overall. Yeah, and so the areas where 
This really excel our inspection in hostile environments, products with sensitive surfaces, very small specimens, or specimens with really complex geometry. Okay, so going from that, we get this article where they're actually using this to improve the processing and development of additive manufactured components. So there's been a bit really big push within additive manufacturing that they can get these print, 3D printed materials to be actually used as parts, you know, not just being mock parts or prototypes, but being used in the field. And a lot of the big problem stems from defects during the printing process. So what this article shows is that by using laser ultrasound, they can keep the detector and the signal generator separate from the material. And so as each layer is deposited, Man, that's cool. they can measure for flaws or inconsistencies. Was, yeah, voids or something. Mm -hmm. And this article doesn't do it. It was from about two years ago. So I'm sure maybe someone has done this. They theorize that you could tie the signals that it's receiving after it measures each layer back to the printer itself. And so if a flaw is detected, it can go and make some sort of correction before it continues depositing layers. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we're gonna interview my good friend, Jeff Bates, who's been working on developing new materials for enabling ultrasound technology. Okay, today we've been talking about the coupling between electric field and mechanical strain. Uh, there is a name for this. It's called the piezoelectric coefficient. And technically in a single crystal, you would need to know this coupling coefficient in all the different crystalline directions. Uh, the most commonly reported one though is piezoelectric coefficient D31. A higher coefficient means that you're gonna have better coupling between mechanical strain and electric field. This allows you to have a more powerful and a more sensitive transducer. MapMatch allows you to search for these materials based off of specific properties such as the piezoelectric coefficient D31. But it also allows you to search for materials that have been tagged as piezoelectrics. And there you're going to see a list of things like PVDF or barium titanate and lots of the materials that make up the very best piezoelectric materials out there. So head over to mapmatch.com and see how it could help you on your next project. And if you are a manufacturer or a supplier of piezoelectric materials, consider contacting MapMatch and having them list your materials on their website so more people can find it and use your product. All right, we are back from the break, and unfortunately, Dr. Sparks could not be joining us because his wife is having a baby, so hopefully all that goes smoothly, but I am here with Dr. Jeff Bates. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Professor Jeff Bates. I have a PhD in material science and engineering from the University of Utah, and uh, my work is in polymers and biomaterials, and one of the main things that we try to focus on is consumer-based products and translating lab data into user data. Mm -hmm. So from my understanding, you've been involved in some research with hydrogels and using them as a coupling medium for ultrasound technology. But before you get into what hydrogels are, do you want to start with how you even got into this project? All right. There was a lady who graduated from the University of Utah with, in the PA program a, few, a number of years ago, mm -hmm. and she'd been working on ultrasounds, and she's a, an ultrasound technologist, or uh, she does a lot of radiology, and she's out in North Carolina. And so um, she just called, and she said that she was interested in trying to find a way to make the ultrasound images more clear. And so one of the things that she indicated on in that conversation is that the um, the clarity of the images is a is a function of the well she didn't say the acoustic impedance of the material but that's what we later discovered so like just how how well the sound waves would travel through the material mm -hmm. and so um, she asked us if we would develop something and she had an idea in mind 
Um, and her goal was really we wanted she wanted something that was that had the clarity that she needed, but also that wasn't super messy to clean up. And so I mean everybody knows like ultrasound gel you put it on it's all gloopy and gross, and gets everywhere. And of course you don't get it all, all cleaned off all the time. And so she just wanted to remove some of that discomfort that comes from ultrasounds because I she had said that some of the patients were even requesting not doing ultrasounds if they could avoid it because they didn't like the mess. But Anyway, since I have a lot of research in hydrogels, um, we went ahead and uh, decided to, to do a hydrogel approach for this. So the acoustic impedance of water is very similar to the acoustic impedance of the body. And so the reason why you can't just shoot an ultrasound um, into the body through air is because you're not going to get that same um, movement of, of sound. Hydrogels are hydrophilic polymers. And so what that means is you have, like when you make them, you mix a, a liquid together and then you cure them. And so what happens with these is that since they're all hydrophilic, they're all water-soluble. And so that makes these really nice gels. But if you just put them by themselves into a liquid, into water, then they're just going to go into solution and you'll, you'll lose all of them. So what we do is we cross-link them. So we use um, a certain kind of bonding. So at, at the end of each... So the crosslinker is a chain, mm -hmm. a, mole a molecular chain that has two groups, so one at either end, that will bond to the, these water-soluble components. So this creates the hydrogel material, mm -hmm. which happens to be, because it has these water-soluble properties, it's a really good... Um, it's a really good material for monitoring stuff that happens in the environment and for being responsive to things that are happening. So they'll have a pH response. You, see, you can use them for sensors and drug delivery and all sorts of things. So we thought, well, since we have this squishy type of material, then let's go ahead and see if we can use this, the squishiness of the material to transmit um, the ultrasound waves. And also because it's a hydrogel and you can uh, control how much water is taken into the material by the degree of cross-linking. We thought, well, we might probably already have right off the bat an acoustic impedance that would be similar to ultrasound gel to begin with. So that's why we chose the hydrogel. Gotcha. And so just to make sure that we're all on the same page, the hydrogel is essentially the polymer that you're using creates somewhat of like a matrix that can contain the water. Yes. Right? Awesome. So how did you actually get started with developing that? Did you simply look at the problem and say, oh, I was going to use this hydrogel composition? Or did you do research? And what did that look like? Okay, yeah. So at the beginning of every project, we always do a lot of research. I don't ever just jump in thinking, oh, I've got this idea. I just kind of like as a side note, I don't know if this is interesting. I mean, people ask me all the time, they're like, oh, professor, I have a question about some material. I've got this thing I'm trying to do. What material would you use? And I'm like, I don't just have like an index of materials swirling around in my brain. I have to actually mm -hmm. do the research. So with all of the things that I do, I'm like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And so I actually start everything with a huge lit review and put together a proposed technical approach. And that's what I did in this case. I wanted to understand what was it that actually um, affected the, the clarity of the images that we're getting from ultrasound. And, and so, like, all of these things that I'm telling you right now, this is after I've gone through this whole process. It's mm -hmm. like the acoustic impedance. I didn't even know what that word meant. So it's one of those things where I didn't even know what I didn't know at, the, at, that, at that moment. And so I had, to, I had to look up acoustic impedance and how do you test the acoustic mm -hmm. impedance of materials. And, and so we put together, I mean, I looked at different types of ultrasound materials. And one of the things, so I'm talking about it being a squishy material. 
Um, I like for my drug delivery projects, I use a totally different hydrogel because I, it's not squishy. This is a drug delivery device that has to deliver it to a certain surface area. And so we don't have that type of thing. Like the squishy is like it'll stretch like a thousand times what it's okay, like wow. what like from its original form. And so that was us having to research what could we use because the idea is you could lay the, the material down and then as you move the ultrasound probe tip, you could just squish the material wherever it needed to go without tearing it. So that was, okay. those were some properties that we were looking for. So not only the water and the movement of the sound through the water of the material, like in, in within the matrix, but also just like how would we do this in a use case scenario? And then the idea is you get done with it and you just peel it off and throw it in the garbage. So it just is this little sheet of polymer material that you just throw away and it's that's it. Yeah, That's really impressive that you were able to kind of change how this material is being used and apply it to this new sort of situation. How does this compare to the goop that was being used before? The, um, the acoustic impedance for water is 1.48 times 10 to the 6 Raleigh's. And so our, the acoustic impedance of, our human body, of the human body is 1.63 times 10 to the 6 Raleigh's. The material that we developed had an acoustic impedance of 1.43 times 10 to the 6 Raleigh's. So that meant that our material was really close to the acoustic impedance of the human body. That would lower the amount of noise you're picking up and hopefully result yes. in a more clear image. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what sort of testing methods did you do to actually test how, how well your material performed? Were you sending it to a, a hospital or? Yeah, so for this project, we had, a, we had all these different research questions that we were trying to answer. And it was one of those where we had to take a step back and think about what is it that we're trying to, to test and how would we prove this in a lab setting so we don't have to send lots of samples across the country. So we did send a lot of samples across the country to North Carolina to be tested, and that gave us really great results. But what we did in-house is we, first of all, I mean, since I'm a materials science and engineering professor, um, I don't know as much about electrical engineering as I wish that I knew, especially after this, and especially about acoustic impedance. So I had to start asking around, and I said, how on earth do we test acoustic impedance? And people would give me all sorts of things, and I was like, oh, I don't even know. And so we ended up just going from professor to professor looking for anybody that had any experience whatsoever in testing ultrasound gel or anything re even remotely related to that. So we ended up finding a professor in, I think he has a dual appointment in electrical engineering and biomedical engineering, um, Professor Doug Christensen. And he said that um, a number of years ago, a lot of people have been working on ways to make ultrasound gel better than it currently was. But they had all just kind of abandoned the idea because they weren't getting the results that they were looking for. But he had this whole setup with a fish aquarium and he used an oscilloscope and we were measuring the speed of sound through our material. And so the speed of sound through our material ended up being a really good indicator because it, it just needed to, well, so what we did is we tested the gel. We used these little just transparent PVC tubes that were cut into one inch uh, thicknesses and they were about two inches in diameter. And so we would fill it up with our material, we'd fill it up with ultrasound gel, we'd uh, make these little water pockets through there and we would just test them all through. We wanted to see how, like what the speed of sound would look like going through this, well, with the oscilloscope through the material. So, so we did all these tests and so the data that we got in the lab um, helped us decide what changes we needed to make to the whole process. 
And then once we had things that were looking really good in the lab, then we would send them across the country. We probably sent maybe three or four batches of samples over to her. And so what she did is she would put the material on her forearm and take scans of her forearm. So it's probably not totally, like she probably needed an IRB, like like Institutional Review Board uh, for doing human subject testing. But did she have any way of sort of quantifying the clarity of the image or was it using all those other metrics? And if those were more aligned, you could not necessarily assume, but that was a good indicator of image quality. So what what we did to get the data from her is, I mean, she would take pictures. We would have pictures of each of our gel materials and then we we could see the the clarity of each of each image that she would send. But then we also just gave her like a user matrix. And so we would have like, here's our sample. So tell us about the viscosity. How does it feel to you? So it was really qualitative data that we were getting from her at this level. So how does it feel viscosity wise? What do you think about the picture quality as a radiologist or somebody who works in radiology? Do you feel like the picture quality is good? Great? Okay. So she used really um, terms that we had identified. So okay and great are some that we got. A lot of the data that she gave was qualitative and I mean, it was nice. It was really useful as user feedback data. And then we could use her recommendations because she would say, well, I think what if we did this? What if we did that? So we actually had two different approaches that we tried. One of them was one that she kind of invented in her mind, which it worked really well, actually. Um, but I liked ours better. And actually, the image quality was better. Is, is this now commercially available? Is this being used or is it still in the patenting or research process? Well, we actually sent our proposed technical approach to her and the hospital where she worked. And so I think her hospital, um, well, I know that they did the intellectual property filing for it. Mm -hmm. And so they have patented it, but I have no idea where this sits in terms of of commercialization Mm because our job as the engineers is just to make it and test it, make her something that works. And then it's her job to say, okay, here's where we're going to go from there. So like, that's the sad part about consulting is you, you do your thing and then you just kind of send your babies off into the world and see what happens with them. I assume you get somewhat attached to the projects that you work on. And so is it, it must be kind of hard to have to let them go or by the time you get to the end you're just like I'm done with this I'm ready to move on oh I've never felt done with anything so mm-hmm. I love doing all of these consulting projects and honestly they forced me to think about something that I, I I mean I may have come across those in my life but where I'm not a user for those things it's fun having people say hey you know here's this ultrasound gel can you make something or like just a number of things that I've I, you know they're not within my frame of reference on a day-to-day basis and so I get really excited about them because we do so much of our literature review up front to just understanding what is the problem and how can we create the best solution for that problem. So, yes, I would say that I, I feel like they're, um, like they're all my children, you know. And so like mm-hmm. I, I, always, I, I want to keep them and, and make sure that they're as successful as possible. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge that I'm not always the best person to commercialize the products that I've been working on. And I need, I need to leave that to, to those people that are the best at it. Um, I do like to, to stay in contact with people. And mm-hmm. some of them have actually just kept us on 
on staff essentially just to make sure that they you know that they get through uh, manufacturing they get through different iterations of their products and and I love doing that it is still kind of bittersweet when you're like oh I did that thing and then it's like well I have to take a step back and I only work like two hours a month on that project because they just have a couple of questions like oh they, there are my answers at the end so I do miss the day-to-day Mm-hmm. Uh, work with those products, but it is fun to to watch the whole thing just kind of play out and be so immersed in it. Have you found that your work on one project has influenced your perspectives and your work on another? You know, that's uh, an interesting question because um, I sign NDAs with all of the companies oh, that okay. I consult for and non-compete clauses. And so sometimes I think, oh, I know the perfect way to solve this problem. And so I'll have to go ask one of the companies that I've consulted for, hey, you know, we have this other thing that we're looking at. Is it okay if I, if I propose this approach? So that's one of the things. But to answer your question just more generically, yes. So there are, I mean, a lot, I mean, like if you're transitioning a product into manufacturing, mm-hmm. there are a lot of really common considerations. So um, one of the things is like we develop these things, a lot of these things for customers. And so it works this way for the customer and yay, that's wonderful. But then when you have manufacturing questions, there are just totally new questions that you should have been asking and totally different material properties that you should have been testing for. And nobody tells you those things. And so when I am consulting on uh, screen protectors, for example, and then they're, you know, they're, they're wanting to ship this, these liquid monomer solutions across the ocean from China, I say, oh, just so you know, you need a safety data sheet for that. And they're like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't realize that. And so like just little mm-hmm. things like that that can just help you know, I've learned these things as I've gone through. And so it's nice. I, I think it's valuable to them because they're things that they don't think about too. So Right. One sort of last question, keeping with this consulting note, you know, we have a lot of students who listen to this podcast and say some of them are interested in getting into consulting. What sort of education do they need or what should they sort of do if they are interested in pursuing that route? Well, the thing that, I mean, so that's really interesting. Um, the thing that is interesting about consulting is that they're really paying for, it's like they're renting your brain for a short amount of time. Mm. And so if you don't have the experience like to bring these other questions to the table, you're not going to be able to, to provide a lot of service to them. And so like with like for polymer consulting, for example, because I would never do consulting in a different class of materials, with polymer consulting, you know, I have a PhD in polymers, essentially, I mean, even though it's an MSc, like my expertise is all in that. And so they're paying to to rent my brain for a little bit. And I have a, a lower learning curve than somebody else would have, than they have, especially because they don't mm-hmm. have any, like most of them have no background in, in material science and engineering. And so um, as a student, I think it's a great opportunity to get involved in consulting and I would say to do it through somebody whose brain somebody is renting. So I know that sounds like a really weird way to say it. But the thing is, like, they're not going to pay you to work on it because you don't even have a bachelor's degree. So they, they're not going to have the confidence. So they want the confidence. You have the experience. You have the degree. You have some, like, this awesome credential base that's mm-hmm. going to say, okay, I, I can put my confidence and trust in this person to get me what I'm looking for in the best possible way with the, in the shortest amount of time. Because that's really like when you're consulting, it's expensive. And so they want the shortest amount of time, the fastest turnover that they can. And it's funny because I always want to do good engineering. 
Right. And so lots of times I'll be like, well, I can probably get that for you in two months, but it won't be good engineering. I want to feel proud about this. So give me slightly more time. So like on one of the projects they gave us, they gave us um, a year. And so like a year is probably the absolute fastest that I would ever want to get a product out there and ready for commercialization. Mm -hmm. And that's still a really, really tight time frame. So, I mean, I think two or three years is better, but nobody gives you that amount of time. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing your experience, not only with hydrogels and ultrasound, but also with consulting. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, everyone, thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any questions or feedback, please send us emails at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like the show and want to help us reach more people, consider leaving us a review. It helps us improve and exposes the show to new people. Finally, check out our Instagram page at materialism.podcast and connect with us to let us know what new material you'd like to hear about next. We'd like to give a shout out to Alphabot and Colbyte for letting us use their music in the podcast. You can check them out on Spotify and Bandcamp. Catch you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>